0: Good morning. So good to see all your happy faces. Welcome. Uh, If this is your very first time at Northbrook, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. If you've got a Bible, we are going to turn today to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. I wonder if you've ever been given the silent treatment. Don't raise your hand. I've been given the silent treatment uh, by a variety of people in a variety of ways, and I can tell you it is the worst possible thing you can do to me. I hate it when I'm given the silent treatment. I I would rather you just tell me I'm a big piece of garbage than say nothing at all, because I'm a fixer. Any fixers out there? I want to. I want to fix it. I want it to be done, and I want to move on. I don't like the unknowing. I don't like knowing. Is this going to be okay? Is it going to work out? When does this end? I hate being given the silent treatment. There was a period in biblical history in which it seemed as though God were giving the world the silent treatment. From the very last words of the very last prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, roughly 400 years have passed. This is referred to in theological circles as the intertestamental period in which there were no miracles, no prophecies, no words from God. So if you open your Bible to the book of Malachi and you flip... One page of the New Testament, 400 years have passed. This period was daunting for the people of Israel. The religious and political existence of God's chosen people was contentious and inconsistent. They were first uh, suppressed by the Persians who came in and defiled their temple, their sacred and holy place. When that season ended, they were subjugated by the Romans. To make matters worse, their religious leaders, the Pharisees, they became legalistic. They added to the law of Moses, making the law of men seemingly greater than the law of God. It was a time of volatility. Volatility. There was a weight, and patience was wearing thin. But there was a promise. There was a promise that someday the Messiah would arrive. And so God's people were waiting. You ever had to wait for something? None of us are very patient, I don't think. I don't like waiting. God's people, they were in the midst of a 400-year advent. The word Advent essentially means anticipation or expectation of what's to come. Now here, we're in week two of a four-week Advent. We're waiting to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And at this time of year, there is an expectation, there is a hope, Andy Williams saying it is the most wonderful time of the year. The lights are out. The Christmas cookies are being baked. But we internally are waiting to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, the apex of our faith. And yet, underneath all of that waiting, I, I think there is just a general sense of weariness. Everyone I talk to, just seems like I hear I'm just I'm tired, just weary. Some of us are praying weary prayers. Just when we thought things were getting better, a new variant arrives. We're waiting for answers to questions, maybe even praying for miracles that our reality would change somehow. If that's you, you're in good company with God's people, the people of Israel. Because as the book of Malachi closes, five years go by, then 20, then 100, then 300, and people are waiting, hoping for a Messiah, believing that things would be changed, but slowly losing confidence as God is seemingly silent. Now, yes, of course, They clung to the ancient words of the prophets. One of those dearly held words was the prophet Isaiah. We actually take many of our Christmas prophecies from Isaiah. The most famous probably is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, in which the prophet writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This scripture passage is plastered over Christmas cards. We sing Christmas carols like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Matthew, in his gospel, points to Isaiah chapter 7 as a word speaking of Christ. In verse 22, Matthew writes, all of this took place speaking of the birth of Jesus to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What we do need to understand, however, is that the words of the prophet Isaiah are very contextual, which we'll get to in a moment. What Matthew does is he puts the story of Jesus within the larger story of God and his people Israel. Believing that the Bible is a cohesive voice that speaks across ages, is relevant beyond the immediate, and moves us towards the eternal and good purposes of God. So with that in mind, I want to put Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 within context. So to do that, we start in Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 17. And as I read, what I'm asking you to do is to somehow try and latch onto the words putting yourself in the story. The scripture des- describes itself as alive and active and it is very easy to kind of hear these old dusty words of the prophet Isaiah and tune it out but what I'm going to ask you to do for the next couple of moments is try to insert yourself into the story. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 When Ahaz son of Jotham the son of Uzziah, was the king of Judah. King Razan of Aram and Pekah son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. So if anyone's ever messing with you, just call him a smoldering stub of firewood it comes right from the Bible because of the fierce anger of Razan and Aram and of the son of Remaliah, Aram Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin saying let's invade Judah let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it yet this is what the sovereign Lord says so now Isaiah begins to prophesy it will not take place it will not happen For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only raisin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths in the highest of heights, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judea. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now let's let's give this a little bit of clarification Isaiah chapter 7 is the story of three kings. The king of Syria, the king of Israel, and the king of Judah. In this story... The king of Syria and the king of Israel are joining forces to attack Jerusalem and King Ahaz of Judea, which is ironic because Israel and Judah, they're both God's chosen people. They both come from the same place, and yet there is this division. It is a division and trouble that starts way back in history in the book of Second Kings when uh, the king of, of, Ju- of Judah, Ahaz's father Jotham has a policy of non-compliance with both Syria and Israel. So when Ahaz, his son, inherits the throne, he also inherits this diplomatic disaster. So Syria and Israel, they want to dispose of Ahaz, so they attack Jerusalem, and they're not successful. And yet Ahaz, the king of Judah, has no idea how it's going to end. Is he going to win or is he going to be defeated? So the prophet Isaiah steps in to this story and offers three prophecies to Ahaz. All three are very time-specific and all three involve the birth of a child, one of which is Isaiah chapter 7. So going back to verse 2, the story begins by uh, Isaiah is saying the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind so what's happening here in this moment to put it bluntly is King Ahaz is freaking out have you ever had a moment in your life in which you were freaking out I have a daughter. I'm constantly freaking out. (laughs) King Ahaz finds himself in a very desperate place. His world is caving in. I suppose he's he's lonely, his back is against the wall, people are looking to him for leadership, others are probably blaming him, no one is coming to his aid, his faith is being tested, he's uncertain, and very, very few people understand the weight that he carries. It's a very lonely place. All of us understand loneliness. It's a very human experience. As I was writing this message, I was taken back uh, to a time when I was in college. I don't know why I remember this so clearly, but I was, a, I was a sophomore. It was a Saturday evening. I was sitting in my dorm room all by myself. My roommate was out. None of my friends were around. I had no homework. I had nothing to do, no one to call. And I sat there on my bed thinking, how pathetic am I? in college, on a Saturday night, and I have no friends, no one to hang out with. It was very, very lonely. But that's not what we're talking about in this story. What Ahaz is experiencing is something much deeper. Something I'll simply label as spiritual aloneness. It is something that strikes at the very soul of who we are. It begins, I suppose, when we start to ask difficult questions because things aren't going as planned. Maybe it begins when relationships that we thought were solid begin to grow superficial or we have large quantities of interactions with others but not quality ones. Spiritual aloneness can be an unraveling of the human soul. Verse 2 tells us that Ahaz was shaken. That word shaken literally means to be unstable and to roam around not knowing what to do or where to go. The spiritual loneliness happens when you question everything, where you no longer understand where you fit in the grand narrative of life or what the future holds. It can start because an event Shifts your perspective on everything. And as you begin to internalize it, as your perspectives begin to shift and change, you begin to wonder, do I share this with anybody? Because if the people that I love and the people that I think love me really knew what I thought about whatever's happening in my life or the world right now, they might not be my friend anymore causing you to feel very, very alone. Or or maybe it's a wrestling with doubt, and you have no place to process your doubt, because if you shared the doubts that you had, then people would label you, and you feel very, very alone. Or quite possibly you're disenchanted by everything in life right now, by people, by society, by church, and maybe even God. And the very things that used to be your anchor now just feel like a weight, which I get. There have been so many times over the course of my life that I've just kept my mouth shut because it's been so much easier to be quiet than share what I actually think. Although there have been periods where I couldn't contain it anymore. Years ago, I was ordained in a large denomination and I was beginning to have some disagreements. I was beginning to think differently. I was no longer towing the company line. And so I went to someone that I thought I trusted that was a official in that denomination and I told them where I was at and they kind of looked me in the eye and they said, Mike, you know, you know what your problem is? When everyone says to you, you know what your problem is? That's not a good start. Right? You know what your problem is? You're a fringe person. You're always living on the fringe. And it made me feel really, really alone. And so, what many of us do is we settle for temporary fixes. We conform, we bury it, we ignore it. The trouble is that it's only a temporary solution to a terminal tension. I believe that for 400 years the nation of Israel experienced a sense of spiritual aloneness. Where's God? Not even a single word. As a result, they began to lose their way. They were indoctrinated with Greek culture and philosophy. Their own religious leaders were becoming corrupt. They were losing their sense of identity. And I suppose there was a question... Will there ever be a Messiah? Or is this just wishful thinking in some ancient book? Because 400 years is a long time to wait. Now, yes, of course, they had the words of Isaiah. They had the story of King Ahaz, a man who had his own sense of overwhelming uncertainty. In Isaiah's case the pro- in Ahaz's case the prophet Isaiah speaks a word of assurance and says to King Ahaz in verse 4 be careful keep calm do not be afraid do not lose heart so maybe as the people of Israel waited they unrolled the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and turned to chapter 7 and as they read the words of the prophet there was this sliver of assurance If God were faithful to Ahaz, then maybe he'll still be faithful to us. But honestly, sometimes you just want assurance that things are going to go like we think they should go, that things are going to work out. I I suppose as King Ahaz sat in his palace in Jerusalem as he was being attacked, he just wanted to know, are things going to work out? I suppose the nation of Israel wanted some assurance that someday a Messiah would eventually come and redeem his people. Like, I want assurance I want God to, at least on occasion, give me a sign that I know that I'm going in the right direction. I mean, have you ever prayed and asked God to give you a sign? In Isaiah chapter 7, God speaks to Ahaz and says to him, I'm going to give you a sign, pick whatever you want. Like it's a golden goose. Verse 11, ask the Lord for a sign, whether it's the in the deepest of depths or the highest of heights I'll give you whatever sign you want but Ahaz says I will not ask I will not put the Lord to the test and I say what's wrong with you God's giving you a gift but Isaiah says here now you house of David is it not enough to try the patience of humans will you not try the patience of God God gives Ahaz a gift and Ahaz is like no 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 and God's getting frustrated Over the years, I have, on occasion, asked the Lord for a sign. I remember one year in particular, this is, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, I was fishing in Iowa, just outside Des Moines, and I was wrestling with a question that I wanted an answer to. Is it this, or is it this? And so as I stood on that bridge, fishing a river in Iowa, I said to the Lord, if I catch a fish right now, <laughs> then this is going to happen, which is what I did not want to happen. And no sooner did the words leave my mouth than I yanked. I caught a fish. I got sick to my stomach because that was not the answer I wanted. I reeled it in. I handed the pole to the person sitting next, standing next to me. I walked away, and I've never fished since. <laughs> and then... The thing never even came true. Actually, the exact opposite happened. Well, God is personally offering Ahaz a sign and Ahaz is being falsely pious. Well, I don't want to put God to the test, you know. So God gets irritated and God says, well then, I'm going to give you a sign. And here it is. Verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now here's where things start to get a little bit muddy because this prophecy demands an immediate fulfillment to it. It's being given to Ahaz. A child's going to be born. He's going to be a person of integrity and the nations that are attacking you will be deserted long before this kid is even in his prime. But then Matthew in his gospel points to this prophecy as if it's speaking of Jesus. So which is it? Is it for Ahaz? Or is it about Jesus? What do we do with this? Well, I would argue that because the Bible is alive and active, it's both. The stories of God's movement in history invite each generation to enter into the story. So yes, it was true. For King Ahaz, a child was going to be born. And yes, it was true for the nation of Israel. A savior would come. And yes, it's true for us. God will come and be with us. Because really, what's most important about this prophecy is the promise of God. That he is a God who will be with his people. I was with Ahaz. I was with the Israelites. And I'm with you. And that's what I want, right? I want to know that God's with me. I read a story this week about a family who attended an Episcopalian church on Christmas. As the family got up to leave, the priest was in the back in his robes, and the family approached the priest with their three-year-old daughter. And as the three-year, as the family approached, the three-year-old daughter looked the priest in the eye, and she waved, and she said, Hi, God! And the priest said, oh, no, 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 honey, I'm, I'm not God. I'm just, I'm up here and I, I represent God. I, I help people worship God. And he looked her in the eye and said, honey, do you understand that? And she goes, yes, I understand. And as they walked away, the little girl turned back around looked at the priest again and said, bye, God. <laughs> because we can only partially comprehend the divine, we want something we can we can touch, something we can see. Yes, I believe that God is all around. But in my humanness, I need a little bit more. And so as we enter the Christmas season and we spend some time, I hope we'll sit and gaze at the manger because I can, I can touch it. And I'm reminded that God is still thousands of years later fulfilling his promise that he is with us. But it doesn't stop at the manger. Jesus lives his life. Eventually he's crucified for you and I and right before he's crucified he gives us another another sign, another way of remembering him. Now I know many of you are anxiously holding your communion cups thinking he forgot to do communion. <laughs> I didn't. Because shortly before his death, Jesus also gave us another way to remember. Another way to touch. Another way to taste. And so I'm going to invite you now to take your bread and your juice, your little cups, and open those. And as we celebrate communion this weekend, I want us to be reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul that challenge and invite us to examine ourselves before we take of the bread and drink of the cups. Let's just take a moment of examine and then we will come back and take communion together. that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to God, broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. When you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. supper he took the cup gave thanks to god and he said this cup represents the new covenant between god and his people it is sealed with my blood when you drink of it do so in remembrance of me